Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. Hope you're doing well today. My name is Travis, I'm the pastor here. If it is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. We're thrilled and excited that you are here checking things out, worshiping with us. We would love a chance to connect and let you know how much we appreciate your visits. If you do me a huge favor, let us know that you're here. You can do that a couple of different ways. One, you can just text the word welcome to that number that you see. Just text welcome to that number. That's all you got to do. Or we have our welcome cards over here at our welcome table uh, as you exit right there next to the gym doors. You can just fill one of those cards out, leave it on the table. Um, like I said, that gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So if you could do that for me, I would really appreciate that. Uh, and if you, uh, for those of you that have been following along, you know that we are, we are walking verse by verse through the book of Acts. We're going to continue that today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we're going to finish out that chapter today. If you don't have your Bibles, it's totally fine. You can follow along on the screen right here, or we have Bibles, again, at our welcome table out there in the hallway. Uh, grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you. But uh, Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 6, carry it all the way through the end to verse 40. So last week we saw uh, Paul and Barnabas split over a disagreement. They parted company. They, they went their separate ways. And now Paul, setting out on his second missionary journey, is bringing along with him Silas. And I think we, we showed a map. Can you guys pull that map up? Like we showed, look at that. Perfect. Well done, guys. So they, they set out from Antioch over here on the right side in Syria. Uh, and Paul and Silas, they travel north and then to the west, going along the southern part of modern-day Turkey. That's the Roman province of Galatia that you see there. They're going to hit the cities that we saw in Acts chapter 13 and 14. They're going back through these places where we, they've already been, where they planted churches. They're going to Derby and Lystra and Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium, and they're going to keep making their way west. So that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 6. They've left, they've started the second missionary journey, and then it says this in Acts 16, starting in verse 6, says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right, let's pull up that map one more time. Pause here, and I'll just kind of explain what's going on, uh, just so you guys can kind of see visually what is happening. Uh, as it says, they, they were trying to go and preach the word in Asia. That's, that's the Roman province of Asia that you see there on the western side of modern-day Turkey. As you can see, that's where Ephesus is, so we're going to come to that eventually. But, but right now, the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. And we're like, okay, well, let's try north, going to Bithynia there. That's the north part of Turkey. And, uh, Jesus says, no, don't go there. And then he gives them this vision of a man from Macedonia, which as you can see, Macedonia is, is across the Aegean Sea there. That's modern-day Greece. Jesus is, is pushing Paul and Silas towards Macedonia, towards Greece, and eventually we're going to see they're going to get to Philippi there, and that's where Acts chapter 16 ends, is just them in Philippi. So they're about to cross over from Troas into Macedonia, into modern-day Greece, and to Philippi. And as you saw here, a couple of things just to point out, just see the, the divine leading, right? Like the, Jesus is directing their steps. 
And also, I think it's interesting in verse 10, it goes from, uh, this is going to sound a little nerdy, but it'll be all right. It goes from third, or third person plural to first person plural, right? So we've been seeing in, in the writing here that Luke is writing. He's the author of Acts. It says, they did this, they did that, they went here, they went there. But now it says, we. It says, we. So most people believe that this is where Luke joins the ministry team of Paul. And we see, we're going to see Luke as a companion of Paul all throughout the New Testament. It's believed that he got picked up somewhere in Mycenae or Troas or something like that. All right, let's keep going here. Verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed there in that city for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Okay, let's pause there. So they make their way to Philippi. And Philippi, the description here is that it's a leading city, which means it's a big city in Macedonia, and it's a Roman colony. Now, that's important because a Roman colony was the highest level these outward cities in the Roman Empire could get to, right? Like, it wasn't just like any other city in the Roman Empire. A colony was a big deal. It means that you were more autonomous than other cities. You were free from certain taxation. You had more rights and privileges afforded to your citizens than other cities. So being a colony is a big deal. That's an important part of Philippi. And Paul says that they stayed there for, for many days. They stayed there for a long time. And on the Sabbath, he said that they, they went out looking for a place of prayer. Now, if you, you've been with us, you know that Paul's normal uh, objectives here, the normal thing that he does when he goes into a city, what, what did he do first? He goes to the synagogue and preaches there first. Well, here it says that he went outside the city to find a place of prayer. What that means is that there wasn't enough Jewish people, there wasn't a high enough Jewish population in Philippi to have an actual synagogue. And what would happen in those cities, the the Jews there would just gather outside the city gates, typically by a body of water, on the Sabbath for prayer. So that's what Paul's doing. So he goes to where the Jewish folks are gathered. There's a God-fearing woman named Lydia, which that God-fearing should kind of register in our minds. Again, if you've been with us, that that should point back to Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. We saw that phrase. He was a God-fearing person. But that phrase, God-fearing, just a reminder, is it's a Gentile who follows along with Jewish worship practices, right? Like they're participating in Jewish worship, but they're not a Jewish person, they're a Gentile. So as Paul is preaching, as he's sharing the gospel, says the Lord opened up Lydia's heart to believe, her and her whole household. And Lydia is, is a really incredible person. She's a dealer in purple cloth. I mean, she had her own business selling purple cloth, which was really expensive at that time. Only the rich folks were buying purple cloth. It was a sign of wealth, sign of royalty. So what we're led to believe here, and especially because she has a big enough house to invite Paul and Silas to hang out at, she's a wealthy businesswoman, probably a well-known person in Philippi. She puts her faith in, in Jesus. Her whole household puts her faith in Jesus. It's an awesome moment, right? All right, let's keep going here. Let's continue to see how they... The ministry is going in Philippi. Verse 16. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. 
Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them. The chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. All right, let's pause again. What's going on here? So as they're ministering, as they're going about preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, they come across paths with a, with a servant girl, a slave girl at this time, and she, as it says there, has, has a spirit by which she predicted the future. All right, so what does that mean? What's going on here? That, that phrase, a spirit by which she predicted the future, is actually just two words in the original language, and it literally translates to a python spirit, a spirit of the python. Here's what that points to. It points to a Greek myth. You don't need to know all this, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, Greek myth Apollo, he slayed this serpent, this python that was guarding the oracle at the city of Delphi. That oracle could predict the future, and then he got that power. So that's what's going on here. So anytime there was a person who was a fortune teller, anytime there was a person who was predicting the future like this, what they said was, oh, that, that person has the spirit of the python, the spirit of the python. So that's what's going on here. So she's following them along, and Paul gets annoyed with her for, for saying that they are servants of the Most High God providing a way of salvation. You might be like, well, wait, why, why is he annoyed with that? I mean, I get, like, somebody following around everything you're doing, just yelling that out all the time could probably get annoying, but, like, what she's saying is true. Why, why would he get frustrated about that? Well, it's because what, what, they were, what she was actually saying, yes, technically true from a biblical standpoint, but when the Gentiles of this time heard that, all they heard was Paul and Silas are proclaiming truth in another God and another way of salvation. See, the gods that they worshiped, you know what they said about those gods? Oh, that's the most high God. Oh, that God provides a way for salvation. So when the Gentiles heard this woman saying that this is what they were doing, all they heard was, oh, here's just another God to worship. Here's just another God to follow. Here's just another way of salvation to follow. See, what was happening is the truth, God's truth was being twisted in a way that it was actually deceiving for the people that would hear that. And where have we seen a snake twist the words of God, deceive the people of God? And that should point us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way back to in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and here comes Satan disguised as a snake, twisting the truth of God, twisting the words of God. And that's exactly what we see going on here. So Paul gets annoyed with that, right? And you can understand why now. He gets annoyed, casts that spirit out, and the people, her, her owners, get mad about that. And why is that? Because this was a lucrative business, man. If you had somebody who could fortune tell, who could predict the future, you made a lot of money doing that in this time. And now their business, gone. No more business for these guys. So they're frustrated. They drag Paul and Silas before the authorities, and they say, these, these guys are disturbing our city. And that might seem like, okay, what's the big deal? This is a big deal for a Roman colony to have a, a disruption like this. Them accusing them of, of disturbing the city was saying like, hey, these guys are going against Rome, and that's a big deal. 
And, and the leaders in Philippi know that if word got back to Rome that they're having a riot or a disruption or a disturbance going on in their city, man, Rome's going to come down hard. They might strip them of their designation as a colony. Like, there's, there's important stuff at play here. And that's why the crowd reacts the way they do. They end up beating Paul and Silas without a trial, without giving them a chance to defend themselves, and they throw them in prison, right? All right, let's keep going. What happens when they're in prison? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself, since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, do not harm yourself, because we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right, before, right away, he and his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come now, go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens and threw us in jail, and now they're going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them, and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. All right, so we, we find Paul and Silas beaten, thrown in prison, and what are they doing in prison? They're worshiping. They're singing hymns. They're praising God. They're praying so that everybody in the jail can hear them, and then, then there's this earthquake happens. Like, this earthquake happens. The doors come open. Everybody's chains break free, and, we, and we, we've seen this happen. Like, when, when earthquake happens in Scripture, when you see that, that should trigger you, man. That, that's, God, that's a symbol for God's presence and activity. That earthquake didn't just happen on its own because of natural stuff happening on No, God caused that earthquake. And the, the jailer, knowing, man, the, the doors are open, the prisoners, I'm sure they just ran out. Like, how many of us, is, you, you're chained up, wrongfully in prison, earthquake happens, chains break free. I mean, how many of us are sticking around, right? None of us. I'd be, bold, I'd be gone, right? Like, we would be running out of that place. And this guy figures that that's exactly what happened. And he knows that as, as the jailer, it's his job to keep the people in prison. And if they break out, he's responsible. So he knows the authorities are just going to find him and kill him. So he's like, I'm just going to take care of this myself. Pulls out a sword. Paul's like, no, no, time out, time out. Don't, don't, don't do that. We're all here. I mean, that, that shows this guy, man, like that's not normal. Like that's not normal behavior. You know, he, he probably heard Paul and Silas singing all night, praying all night. Maybe he knew something about the way that they were preaching, the, the stuff that they were talking about, the gospel. So he pulls him aside and he says, what, what must I do to be saved? And I love Paul's answer. It's just so simple. What, what does it mean? How do we get saved? We believe in Jesus. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus. 
and he shares the gospel with him. He talks about Jesus with him and his family and his household. They all get saved. They all get baptized. It's an incredible moment, right? Like, praise God for this. And then morning comes, and they get word that, that oh, the, the, the leaders of the town, the magistrate, the, the, they want to set you free, right? Like, I don't, we don't know why. Maybe they were like, man, we brought these guys in. We beat them, and we threw them in prison, and then an earthquake happened. Like, that's probably from these dudes. Let's get them as far away from the city as possible, right? Like, so they want them gone. And then Paul's like, whoa, time out. No, no, no. That's not how this is going to work. That's not, we want an apology is basically what he's doing here. And that might seem petty, but, but it's not. Let me explain why. It's not petty because, first of all, he and Silas are Roman citizens, which is a big deal. As you can see, like, the, the magistrates got scared when they found that out because they violated their rights as Roman citizens. They, they held a, uh, a false trial. They didn't give them a chance to defend themselves. They wrongfully imprisoned them, wrongfully beat them. These are punishments that, that should not have happened to a Roman citizen. So they're like, oh, boy, we messed up. And Paul's like, yeah, you, you messed So he pulls that card of Roman citizenship. And then also he knows that if he just goes away quietly, the impression that this city of Philippi has on the church, has on the gospel, is that it's illegal. And if you follow that, if you put your faith in Jesus, then you're going to end up like Paul, beaten and thrown into prison. See, Paul knows that they've tarnished the reputation of Jesus and the church and the gospel. And he's like, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing that. You come and apologize. You come and escort us. And that, that's going to give validity to the church here. All right, so that's what's going on. So eventually they come, they appease them, which is not really an apology, but it counts. And, and Paul leaves, and as he leaves, he stops by Lydia's house to encourage the brothers and sisters, which that phrase means that, that the church was gathering there, which is really cool. Like, they're hanging out at, at Lydia's house, and they go and encourage them, and they go on their way. All right, so what, what's going on in this passage? Like, what is happening here in Philippi? What can we draw from this? Well, it's clear that God wanted them in Philippi, right? Like that was made clear by the Spirit preventing them from going to Asia and Bithynia. That was clear from the vision of the Macedonian man, like saying, come and help us. It was clear that God directed them to Philippi. And why is that? Why did God bring them there? It's to do exactly what they were accused of doing. Look at verse 21 again, or verse 20 again. What were they accused of? Bringing them before the authorities the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. If you underline or highlight things in your Bible, underline, highlight that phrase, seriously disturbing. They were seriously disturbing the city. Now, that phrase means exactly what we know it. Like, when we disturb something, we disrupt something. We change something. We go against the normal flow of things. That's exactly what God wants to do in the city of Philippi. He wants to change it. He wants to turn that place upside down for the gospel. He wants to disturb and disrupt that city. And here's the thing. Jesus wants to do that in our lives today. He wants to disturb and disrupt our lives. When he comes into our lives to save us, to rescue us, he doesn't want to just save us and then leave things the way they were. He doesn't want to just save us and then leave things normal. He doesn't want to leave things unchanged. No, he wants to save us and then change us and mold us and shape us and make us more like him. He wants to disrupt our lives. He wants to disturb our lives. So here's my one and only point for today's sermon. It's this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus wants to disturb your life. What is Jesus doing in Philippi? What does Jesus want to do for us? Say, what, what do we need to learn from this today? It's this. Jesus wants to disturb your life. He wants to disturb and disrupt your life. See, when Jesus saves us, 
he lays claim on our lives. The Bible says in other places that, that we were purchased for a price. That price was Jesus' death on the cross. When he saves us, he lays claim to our lives, and he calls us to commit our lives to him, right? Like this is what we say when we say, make Jesus the, your personal Lord and Savior. What that means is make Jesus the boss, the owner, the director of your life. To give Jesus all of your life. That's what it means when we put our faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. He wants to come into our lives and own us and change us and make us more like him. But we, we, don't, we don't always want that, right? Yes, we want to be saved. Yes, we want to have our sins forgiven. Yes, we don't want to go to hell when we die. But Jesus, can, can you save us and then just kind of let me keep doing my thing? Can you, can you save me and then just kind of, I'll, I'll just keep living my life, Jesus, but, but when I die, I'll go be with you, all right? Like, but can I, just, can I just live a normal, comfortable life here? Is that cool? Like, that's what we want to do, right? Like, that's, that's our mindset. We, we want normal. We want comfortable. We want safe. We want to blend in with the world around us. So yes, we'll let Jesus into our lives, but then we want you to stop. Like, just Jesus, you come in, but then don't mess anything up, right? So we let Jesus in, we put our faith in Jesus, and then we hang this do not disturb sign up, right? Just like if you're staying at a hotel, if you're, we've stayed in hotels, we've seen that sign, you hang it on your door, do not disturb, and that tells the staff there, hey, don't knock on that door, don't go in there. And now I don't know if you've been at a hotel lately, Kendra and I, uh, we went uh, to Asheville for our 13-year wedding anniversary. We stayed in a hotel for a couple of days there, hanging out, kid-free. It was amazing. It was awesome. Uh, but there's, a, there's things now in the hotel where they're, like, trying to conserve things and, like, save the, the world and save the environment, I guess, through, through not housekeeping. I don't really know. I don't know, but there's a sign in there that said, hey, if you want to help conserve things, you want to help save the environment, hang this do not disturb sign up, and that'll let our staff know to not come in and change the sheets, change the towels, take trash. I'll do all these things that normal housekeeping stuff happens in a hotel. And we're like, sure, you know what? I'll do my part to save the world while I'm here for a few days. Yeah, no problem. I can totally save the world while I'm here. Sounds great. So I take, take that little thing, I hang it outside our door. It says, do not disturb. And guess what? Nobody came in. Nobody came in. When we left for the day, when we came back, our room was exactly the way we left it. Exactly the same. How many of us live our Christian lives like that? Yes, we let Jesus in. Yes, we get into the hotel of Christianity. But then we hang that do not disturb sign up. Yes, Jesus, I'll come in. But don't be messing with my life. Don't be messing. Like, we want Jesus to be part of our life, yes, but not our whole life. Yeah, sure, Jesus, you know what? Yeah, sure, I'll live for you. Yeah, sure, Jesus, I'll change. Yeah, sure, Jesus, I'll do those things as long as it's convenient for me. As long as I agree to that. As long as I like that, as long as I would do the same thing, sure, Jesus, I'll follow you. Like, how many of us are living with the do not disturb sign up? Well, church, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's time to tear that sign down and put up a renovation sign, right? I'm sure you've driven by some houses where people are getting work done, roof done, whatever replacers that sign, the company doing, they put that sign up there to advertise. Well, that's what we need to do. We need to take the do not disturb sign off and put a renovation by Jesus sign up. And say, Jesus, yes, I've put my faith in you. Yes, I've trusted in you for salvation, but I want you to come and disturb my life. I want you to come and I want you to shake things up. I want you to change me. I want you to make me more like you. I want you to have full ownership of my life. Jesus, come in and tear out all the bad stuff and replace it with you. That's what we need to do. We need to take that do not disturb sign down and put up a renovation sign. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to talk about that. What are some ways, especially some ways that we see here in this passage 
where Jesus wants to come in and disrupt and disturb our lives, to change us and make us more like him. This is what it means to follow him, church. We don't just get to have Jesus be a part of our life. That's, that's not how it works. We don't get to put our faith in Jesus and then just leave our lives unchanged. That's not how it works. That's not what Jesus wants to do. He wants to change us and shape us and make us more like him. And for that to happen, he's got to disturb some things. He's got to disrupt some stuff going on in our lives. So what are some things that we see here? Uh, one of the ways that Jesus wants to disturb our lives is our plans. Our plans. He wants to disturb our plans. So Paul and Silas, they made plans to go and minister in Asia. They made plans to go and minister in Bithynia. And that sounds awesome, right? Like people hearing the gospel, ministering, planning churches, doing what Paul does. That sounds amazing. Why would God not want that? That sounds like a great plan, right? A great plan. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I don't want you to do that. That's not what I want you to do. I want you to go to Philippi. I want you to go to Macedonia. I've got other things for you to do. So he makes it clear through, through the Holy Spirit, through his spirit, that, that he doesn't want them to go to Asia. He doesn't want them to go to Bithynia. He wants them to go to Macedonia. Now, look, I, I, I think, this is a guess. It's just Travis guessing here, so take it or leave it if you want to. But I, I'm guessing that they weren't physically prevented from going to those places. Right, like, if they really wanted to go to Asia, they could have done that. If they really wanted to go to Bithynia, I, I think they could have physically traveled there. So I don't think they were physically prevented. But God, through the Holy Spirit, is telling them, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. I've got something else for you. So they had a choice to make in this moment. Were they going to follow through with their plans, which by all accounts seemed like, good, like, like a good idea, seemed like a good plan? Or are they going to follow the Spirit's lead? And like Jesus does this in our lives today. He leads us and guides us through his Spirit. And all the time we are confronted with this choice. Are we going to follow Jesus' plans? Or are we going to follow my plans? Are we going to follow the plans that, that I want, the desires that I have? The things that I want to do and accomplish with my life. Am I going to follow that? Or am I going to follow Jesus? Look, it's not bad to make plans. Like, I'm just the, the planners out there. I just want you to know, like, the, this is not a condemnation for you. All right, it's fine to make plans. It's probably wise to make plans. It's probably good to have some sort of plan for your life of, like, you know what, this is what I want to do in the next five, ten, fifteen, whatever years. All right, it's probably good to have those plans. It's, there's wisdom in that. So it's not that making plans is is evil and and wicked and sinful. Like that's not what we're saying. But what we do as Christians, what we're, what we're called to do is, is, yes, make plans, but then hold them with open hands. Hold them with open hands and say, Jesus, you get final call on this. You get final call. Look, sometimes plans are going to match up. He's going to be like, yep, sounds great. Go do that. Other times he's going to say, you know what, Travis, I, I don't want you to do that. that that's, that's a fine idea. Good idea, Travis. But no, not right now. I want you to go do this. Then I've got a choice to make. Do I follow my plans or do I follow Jesus' plans? I'm like, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does Jesus want to disturb our plans? It's not like, you know, he, he's just playing games with us where it's like, oh, let me just try to disrupt Travis's life. Let me try to make this more difficult than it has to be. Let me take you kind of the long, scenic route over here, Travis. I know you've got, that's a good idea, but I'm going to make your life intentionally more difficult. That's not what Jesus is doing, y'all. That's not what he's doing. The Bible tells us over and over again that Jesus is a, is a good father who wants to give good gifts to us, his kids. He wants to do that. 
we're meant to take from that is that Jesus always has our best interests in mind. That his plans are always and forever infinitely better than what we could come up with our own. So it's not that that he's being evil and wicked and just trying to trick us and mess with us. No, what this means, why this matters, is because it comes down to trust and control. Who do I trust most? Who do I give control over to my life? Do I just want to trust myself more? Do I just want to trust my ways more? Do I want to just seem like I have control? Because we really don't have control, but we like to think we do. We like to pretend that we do. And some of us hold that really tight, right? So do we want to continue to live that way? Or do we want to follow Jesus? Do we want to give him control? Do we want to give him all of our trust and say, you know what, Jesus? I do believe that you're a good God that has my best interests in mind, that your plans are better than mine. See, when we believe that, it makes these curveballs that Jesus throws at us sometime a lot better to handle, a lot easier to follow. When we go, you know what? Jesus is directing me a different way. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what hardships are going to come with that. But I know that he's got my best interest in mind. So I'm going to say yes to that. I'm going to follow that. And that's why Jesus wants to disrupt our lives here. He wants to disturb our plans. This is what Proverbs says. Proverbs 16.9 says, A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. It's okay to make plans. It's okay to have ideas and plans. The heart makes many plans, as it says there, right? But Jesus gets final say. Jesus gets final word. Are we going to live like that? Are we going to let him disturb our plans? Another way that we see him causing a disruption in our lives, disturbing our lives, is with our possessions. Our possessions. As we said with Lydia, when she puts her faith in Jesus, this is a woman of some means, right? She's got her own business and a pretty lucrative business, or at least selling things for quite a bit of money at this time. Like She's probably a very successful businesswoman. Again, has a church big enough or has a house big enough to, to house Paul and Silas. And then what is she doing with that house after she puts her faith in, in Jesus? What becomes of her house? Look again at verse 40. We mentioned this already, but verse 40. As Paul and Silas are leaving Philippi, they stop by Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters. That phrase, the brothers and sisters, that's the believers in Philippi, the church. There's no church building here. There's no synagogue for them to meet in. So where's the church gathering? Lydia's house. Lydia's house. She puts her faith in Jesus, and then Jesus says, oh, yeah, hey, that house that you have, yeah, I'm going to use that for a church. I'm going to need your house, Lydia. And what does she do? Sounds great, God. Let's do this thing. Like, sounds great. Do what you want with my house. Like, she saw that, you know what, Jesus is the ultimate owner of my money and my possessions. But too often, we, we view our possessions as, as just that, ours, right? It's my money. It's my stuff, and I get to decide what to do with it. It's mine, right? A couple Fridays ago, uh, Gwinnett County, that's where I live, we had a digital learning day. Don't know why we're still doing that, but we did. So the kids were at home with me. Kendra had to go into work. She's a teacher, first grade teacher, so she had to go to work, and uh, all three kids were with me, which is fine. We had a good time, but Fridays, Fridays for me and Myla, our 18-month-old who's with me on Fridays, that's our grocery shopping day, all right? So we hit up Aldi, we hit up Kroger, we get the groceries done for the week on Friday. So guess what? The big kids, they had to tag along. They had to tag along. And I knew, like, having three kids running around like crazy at a grocery store, you know what? I got to bribe them to, to get some good behavior. So I told the big kids, I was like, look, if y'all can behave, 
If y'all can listen, if y'all can just not fight in the grocery store and not mess with each other, guess what? At Kroger, you get to pick out some candy. I'll let you pick out a treat. You can get whatever you want to. If you're good, you get to, So they were good. They were awesome. So we got to the end. They got to pick out the candy. They get their candy. We come home. I'm trying to unload, and they're just like, Dad, where's my candy? Where's my candy? Where's my candy? And I'm like, y'all got to chill out. I'm trying to unload the groceries here. Go sit down somewhere. I'll get you candy. So I finally get them their candy. And what I do every time I, we, our kids get a treat like that, I always like, hey, can I have some? You're going to share with dad? And they're like, nope. Why not? You're not going to share with dad? Why not? They go, this is my candy. This is mine, dad. I'm like, hold up. Because I don't remember you paying for anything. I don't remember the job that you had and the income that you earned to be able to pay for that candy. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, I'm the one that paid for it. That's my candy. Now give me some of that candy. And they weren't happy about that, but you know what? That's how it works. But how often do we, do we treat our stuff like that? Where we tell God, this is mine. And he's looking at us like, oh, really? Who provided that stuff for you? Who provided your job? Who provided your money? Who did all of this for you? Our stuff doesn't belong to us. Our money doesn't belong to us. They are gifts from God. And he calls us to be good stewards or good managers of the things that he's given us. And just like with our plans, who gets final say over the money that he's given us, over the things that he's given us? God. He gets final say. Look, Jesus talks a lot about this. Like, I know some of y'all are like, oh, here's the pastor again talking about money. Guess what? Jesus talks about money a lot, all right? We just got to get over that. All right, Jesus talks about money more than almost any other topic. It's money and hell, which if you're trying to grow a church, those are two things you don't preach on. But you know what? We're going we're gonna to follow God's word. So he talks a lot about money, and this is what he says in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why, why would he put money there? There's lots of things that we can be devoted to in life. There's lots of things that we can live for in this life. Why did he put money? Why does Jesus talk about money so much? It's because he knows the hold that money and possessions can have on us. He knows how much our heart longs for that. And he also knows that when we are driven by money and materials, and greed, when that is what we're devoted to, it will ultimately ruin us. It will bring us to destruction. Because here's the thing about when we crave money, when we crave stuff, when we crave that, guess what? That desire is never satisfied. That craving is never, I've never met a wealthy person that's like, you know what, I've got enough. I don't need any more. I don't need the latest and greatest thing. I don't need any more money. Nobody talks. They're like, no, I got to get more. I got to get more. And that's why some of the, the wealthiest people, the celebrities out there that we think, man, they just got it all. Like, they can just be so comfortable. They don't have to worry about money. Like, they've got no concerns in life. They got it. They've got everything, right? They can do whatever they want to do. Those are some of the most miserable people in the world because they're never satisfied. They're always wanting more. They're always wanting the next thing. Jesus knows that this will ruin us. He knows that this will destroy us. And the only way to be set free from that is to say, Jesus, th this is all yours. Take it and do with it as you please. You want me to be generous? I'll be generous. You want me to give it all away? I'll give it all away. Whatever you want to do, Jesus, you get final say over this stuff. It's not my money, it's yours. And I'll follow you, whatever you want to do with it. So he wants to disturb our plans, our possessions. Another way he wants to disturb our lives is, is our hope. 
is our hope. And, and by hope, I'm talking about our source of comfort, our source of comfort. Look at, look at what, what's said in verse 19. These guys who had the servant girl making a money, bunch of money off of her and this demonic spirit within her. Well, Paul cast that out. It's gone. And what does it say? Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone. When their hope of profit was gone. These guys, just like what we just talked about, man, they loved their money, they loved their stuff, they loved their income, and now that's been taken away from them, and that's when they get mad. That's when they get upset. That's when they stir up people against Paul and Silas here. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what what brings me the most comfort in life? Where is my source of comfort? What brings me the most comfort? And look, lots of things can do that, right? Lots of things can be our source of comfort. Money can certainly be a source of comfort. Our jobs can be a source of comfort, especially those of you, maybe you started a business, you've grown a business, whatever, like that can be a, a real source of comfort for us. Maybe it's just, uh, you know, that, that sense of control that we talked about. Like you just like to have control over your environment, your people, your family, whatever it is. Maybe it's a sense of, of safety and security in life. That's what brings you comfort. I don't know about you, but, but for me, um, it's having no surprises in life. Like, that brings me a great sense of comfort in life. When I kind of just know what the next thing, or, or I just kind of know, like, all right, I'm, I'm kind of settled here, and I'm going to be here for a while, like, you know, whatever that is. Like, I, that, that brings me a sense of comfort. Like, yeah, I, I hate surprises. Like, if Kendra gets me a gift for the holidays and she tells me about it, she's not going to tell me what it is because she wants it to be a surprise. I'm like, no, I hate that. Now, now I'm going to go searching for it because I, I got to know. I got to know, I don't like being surprised. Don't want any part of surprises. Don't be surprising me over here. I don't like that. It's frustrating. And really what it comes down to is I feel unsettled. I don't like that feeling. I don't like feeling unsettled. That's not how I want to live my life. So I don't like that. that that's a source of comfort for me. What is it for you? What, what's a source of comfort for you in life? And look, what we see from Paul and his ministry, which should be sticking out to us in Acts, and we're going to see this continually as we keep studying this, Paul's comforts in life, constantly taken away. Constantly taken away. He is constantly being beaten. He's constantly being thrown into prison. Everything is constantly being taken away from this guy. And here in Philippi, he's beaten and he's thrown in prison. And what is he doing in prison? Verse 25, what's he doing in prison? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. He's in prison, and he's worshiping. Like, y'all, that's crazy. Who does that? Like, that's wild. Look, just put yourself in that situation, and just imagine you've been beaten wrongfully. You've been wrongfully in prison. How many of us are worshiping God? And you might be like, yes, Travis, I will. I, oh, I'm always worshiping Jesus. Y'all, let's be real. Come on. When we have even the slightest bit of difficulty, when we have even the slightest bit of problems, like, oh, that person was mean to me. Oh, now I'm stuck in traffic. Lord, why have you forsaken me? You've turned your face against me. Why are you cursing me, Jesus? Like, we have the slight, slightest bit of problems. And we're like, Jesus is gone. He's left us. He's deserted us. He's turned his back on us. And I'm just left here suffering. And yet we're going to worship in prison. Y'all, come on, let's be real. Let's be real. No, all of us would be like, Really, Lord? Really? I'm, I'm trying to minister for you. I'm trying to share the gospel, and here I am in prison. Like, we would be wallowing in self-pity right now. We'd be like, woe is me. Look at all the things going wrong, wrong in my life. But here is Paul, and he's worshiping. He's praying, and he's singing, and he's praising God. How is that possible? Who 
does that, it's somebody who's had their life disturbed by Jesus. It's somebody who's had their life turned upside down for Jesus. See, Paul's comfort, Paul's hope is not in this life. It wasn't in the comforts of this life. It wasn't in this world. His hope, his peace, his joy, his fulfillment, his satisfaction is firmly in Jesus. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. And this is right after he gets started talking about all the persecution, all the trouble that we're going to face as Christians. He says this in verse 16. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. It's temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. This is where Paul's comfort and hope is. He knows that his outer self is being destroyed. He's reminded of that every time he goes into a new place and gets beaten and thrown in jail. He knows that. He knows this world is wasting away. And if we put our hope in this world, we're going to have a lot of difficulty. Things are going to be a lot more difficult for us. We're going to struggle all the more when hardships come. I mean, just imagine that source of comfort that you have that you were thinking about. What happens when that gets taken away? What happens when we go through financial difficulty? What happens when our family gets disrupted and problems come in? What happens when maybe we lose our job? What happens when, when our source of comfort is taken away? How often do we just fall apart and crumble? Because our hope is here. And Jesus wants our hope in him. He wants to turn our hope around and place it in him. He wants, to, he wants to look, us to look not at what is seen, not at what this world has to offer, but what is coming to us, that absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And y'all, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what that means. No idea. I can give you my best guess, but we have no idea what that means. But here's what I do know. That sounds awesome. That sounds Who doesn't want an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory? Like, that sounds amazing. Way better than what this life can offer. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, get your focus off of this life and fix your eyes on Jesus. Put your hope and your peace and your comfort and your joy and your satisfaction in him. Another place he wants to disrupt us and disturb us is is our customs. Our customs. Look at what is said in verse 21 here. There's another part of the accusations is saying that they're seriously disturbing our city and they are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Uh, that word customs is exactly what we would think that it means. It's the social norms, the, the accepted behavior of this time. You know, just living a normal life, right? Like that's what Paul is accusing. He's, like, he's, 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 he's teaching ways that go against what Rome wants. He's, he's telling us to do things that would not be in line with Rome. And look, although that's, that's, like a, that's a bit of an exaggeration, right? it's a bit of a false accusation that he's you know, causing them to do things that are illegal, that's not exactly true, but it is pretty true, right? Because like, that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to disrupt and disturb our customs, our normal life. He wants to change our lives and our behavior. See, he doesn't want our lives and our behavior to look like the world around us, the, the culture around us. He doesn't want that. 
He wants our lives, our behavior, what we do in this life to match him and his word. He wants it to match him. He doesn't want us to live like everybody else. He doesn't want us to live like the world around us. He wants us to live like him. He wants us to be like him. So how we live, how we talk, how we view our money, how we treat other people, how we love what we believe to be right and true, our priorities, our goals in life, how we raise our kids, how we talk to our spouse, how we talk to our boss, and on and on and on. He wants these things, our normal behavior, our socially accepted life, he wants that to look like him and not the world around us. He wants to change our customs. He wants to disturb our customs. He doesn't want us to live like everybody else. He wants us to live like him. So we need to ask ourselves, how is my life different from the world around me? How is my life as a Christian different from the culture around me? How is my life as a believer different than the unbelievers around me? Would people that, that I know that I'm around on a regular basis, would they be surprised to find out that I'm a Christian? Like These are things that we need to ask ourselves. Look, the reality is, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think some of us would have to say that we've gotten a little too comfortable, that we've gotten a little bit too much like the world and the culture around us. And it's time to let Jesus disrupt our lives. Again, it's time to take that do not disturb sign up and let Jesus come in and turn our lives upside down and make us more like him and not like the world around us. So how many of us have gotten too comfortable in the life that we're living? One of the ways that we see, even in this passage, a way that we see that Jesus wants to come in and disturb your normal is through gospel-centered, godly hospitality. Hospitality. What, 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 do, what do Lydia and the jailer both do as soon as they put their faith in Jesus? They bring Paul and Silas inside their home. They bring them inside their home. They welcome them in. They open up their home and their lives to Paul and Silas, these two strangers going around preaching the gospel. They get saved and they're immediately like, come, come, come into my house, come into my life, be a part of my world. They let them in. And if, I'm just telling y'all, if we want to live countercultural, if we want to see Jesus disturb our, our normal accepted behavior in this life, I'm telling you, one of the ways that we do that, especially in the culture that we are living in, it's going to be through godly, gospel-centered hospitality. It's going to be through opening up your home and your lives to those around you, especially those that are different from you. Maybe they look different, believe different, whatever it is. When we open up our home and our lives to those around us, to those in our world, that shows Jesus in a whole new way, y'all. I'm just telling you, I really believe, I truly believe that, that if you want to evangelize and share the gospel and get to know people and have gospel-centered conversations, it's going to happen through gospel-centered, godly hospitality, through opening up your home and your lives to those around you. And look, again, some of us have gotten really comfortable with our own circle, right? Like, we know who we know, we're friends with who we're friends with, and that's the end of the story. But we need to get uncomfortable for Jesus. All right, it's time for us to get uncomfortable for Jesus and open up our circle, expand our circle, and let more people in. And let some others in. Start thinking about your sphere of influence. Who are you around on a regular basis? Maybe it's those you work with. Maybe it's people that you see 
out and about on a regular basis. Maybe it's that family that you see at the park every single time you go. A real easy way to expand your circle, neighbors. Neighbors, if you have neighbors, this is the best way to do it. And look, I get it. We're in the sticks in some places still here. So maybe some of y'all are like, I don't have neighbors. I get it, all right? This is going to be a little bit more difficult for you, but I get it. But those of you that do have neighbors, do you know them? I'm not talking about do you know their name. I'm not talking about do you wave to them when they drive by. Do you actually know them? Do you know who they are? Do you know their stories? Do you know where they stand with Jesus? And if the answer to that is no, I'm just telling you, God wants to disturb this. He wants to change this. He has placed you in that neighborhood, in that house for a purpose. And part of that is to reach out. It's to reach out. So how do you do that? Real simple, y'all. Real simple. How do you get to know your neighbors? You, you walk out of your house, you go over to their house, you knock on their door, and you invite them over. Come over for dinner. Come over for lunch. Come watch the game. Whatever it is, make something up. I don't know. Make something up. Invite them over and get to know them. Get to know them. Jesus wants to disturb our customs. He wants to disrupt our lives for his name, for his glory, for his mission. And he's invited us into that. All right, we'll end here. The last way we see Jesus want to disturb our lives is he wants to disturb our fate. Our fate. He wants to disturb our fate. He wants to disturb and change our ending. So when this earthquake happened, the jailer thought his life was over. He thought his life was over. The doors are open, the chains have fallen off, and the prisoners have escaped. My life is over. Whether I kill myself or the authorities find me and they kill me, my life is done. And see, so we read this and we think, man, God sent that earthquake to set Paul and Silas free. He sent that earthquake to set those prisoners free. But no, God sent that earthquake to set the jailer free. He sent that earthquake to free the jailer, to change his life, to change his ending. This is what Jesus does. This is why Jesus came. He came and he lived the perfect life that we never could live. He died the death that we deserve, right? We deserve to die. We deserve the cross. We deserve wrath and punishment and to be held accountable for our sins. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to do that for you. And on the cross, he takes on our sin. He takes on our wrath. He takes on our punishment. And when we put our faith in him, our fate is changed forever. Our ending is changed forever. We go, from, we go from, from dead in our sins to alive in Jesus. We go from prisoners and slaves to our sin to free in Christ. We go from being condemned to now we are declared innocent. Our sins completely and totally forgiven. That's what Jesus does for us. So if you're here, you've never put your faith in Jesus, but maybe you're wondering, well, what is, well, you're asking that same question to the jailer, what does it mean to be saved? What does it look like to be saved? I just want to echo Paul's answer. What does it mean to be saved? How do you get saved? Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. That's all it takes. Put your faith in him and let him come and disturb your him come and set you free. Let him come and mold and shape you and make you more like him. 
If you want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want to be saved today, that's all you got to do is just say, Jesus, I trust in you. I put my faith in you. If you're here, you have questions about it, you want to know what that looks like, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be in the back if you need uh, to talk through that. If you have questions, please come find me. I'd love to talk with you about that. Christians in the room, if you're here and you're a believer, you're here and you're, you say, yes, Travis, I have put my faith in Jesus. I just want to encourage you. Let's live the life that Christ has for us. Let's live the life that Christ has for us. Let, let's stop reverting back to normal and comfortable. Again, some of us have gotten real comfortable in our walks with Jesus. Our walks with Jesus have become comfortable and normal, and they've become safe. Look, I get it. I get it. We like normal. We like comfortable. We like easy. We want safe. And this seems safe. But Christian in the room, I, I want you to hear that is not the way of Jesus. What seems like safety what seems like normal, just living like the world, living like everybody else. It's not safe. It's actually the way of death. It's the way of the python. It's the way of the snake. It's the way of Satan. And his ways always seem good, but they always lead to death and destruction. Christian, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Let's get uncomfortable for Jesus. Let's get uncomfortable for him. Let's stop living this, this fake, normal facade of a life that's just going to come crashing down. Let's take that do not disturb sign off and let Jesus come in and change our lives. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to step into worship and communion like we do every week. So this is a time for believers in the room. If you're here, you put your faith in Jesus. I just want to encourage you to spend some time as I pray. I want you to spend some time in prayer too. The Bible encourages us to, to prepare our hearts, ready ourselves to go and participate in the Lord's Supper. So spend some time in prayer. Maybe spend some time repenting of sin. Maybe spend some time just, just worshiping Jesus for all that he's done for us. Then as you're ready, as you feel led, you can go to the table on either side of the room. You take the cup representing his shed blood for us. You take the bread representing his broken body for us on the cross. We take, we eat, we drink, and we worship our good God and Savior. We pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your salvation, Lord. We thank you that you provide a way out, Lord, that we don't have to stay enslaved to our sin forever. We don't have to stay in the prison of our sin anymore. You sent the earthquake of Jesus Christ to come in and set us free. Jesus, thank you for your salvation, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would change us, that you would mold us and shape us, Lord, that you would lead us away from the normal of this world, that you would lead us away from the comfortable of this world, and you would lead us to you. Let us follow you, Lord, no matter what may come. Let us live wholeheartedly for you, Jesus. Give us the strength to walk in obedience. And Jesus, we ask all of this in your powerful and glorious name. Amen.